Thank you so much, man. It's a privilege to be here. Always a privilege uh, uh, to be with Todd and grateful for your church. That's an amazing vision for what God can do right here in Iowa. And I'm just thankful for pastors like Todd who have a vision to do that. Uh, I believe that's why God created the church, and it's to multiply. We're going to see that in Acts 13. Matter of fact, that's where we're going to be in Acts 13, if you want to begin to turn there. It's in the New Testament, just past the Gospels. And uh, uh, as you turn there, if it's okay, though, I'd like to introduce my family just real fast. I didn't bring them with me. There's too many. And, uh, but I brought a picture, and uh, so there's a posse. And that's not all of them, actually. We, we left two of the ugly kids out. But the, uh, <laughs> the no. I got seven grandkids, and we haven't updated the picture yet. We do that every Thanksgiving. We're about to. But, but uh, I have uh, six kids, and our oldest three uh, are two girls on the, each end there, and then the son in the back. And then we adopted our youngest three. Um, the first one we adopted is Libby right there in the middle uh, from China. Then Michael Lynn, she's from Ethiopia. And then JM, he's from the Philippines. And so we have uh, six kids from four different countries. My joke is uh, when we watch the Olympics, we win. All right, we do. So uh, I always tell a story about uh, JM. You can take the picture off. I, I have attention disorder. Well, I was in, I was in uh, Montana a few weeks ago, and the, they had windows on the side of the auditorium. It was the longest 30 minutes of my life and theirs. You know, there goes a bird. You know, it's, very, it's so easy to distract. But uh, we went to pick up JM. We got JM when he was 12. And so unlike the others, uh, he knew English when we picked him up. We got Libby when she was one. They found Libby outside of a police station, a shoebox. And uh, we got her when she's one, and she's now 21. She's uh, uh, studying to be a pharmacist. And then uh, Michael Lynn, we got her when she's three, and uh, she's just went to college about a month ago. We're empty nest. Took me five minutes to get used to it. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, and then we got JM, but he was 12, so he knew English. It was interesting. They said, now look, when you, they found him when he was one, he was one in the streets when he was five, uh, picking up plastic. Uh, and I mean, they took him to the orphanage. And so he was there for seven years. They said, be real careful with him. He's not used to some of the same luxuries that you're used to. And I'm like, luxuries? Like what? And they went, hot water. Uh, they've only had sink baths there in that. And there, there's hot water in Philippines. I understand that. But in their orphanage in Manila, they did not. It was just sink baths. So long story short, we went to the hotel the first night. Can you imagine you're 12 years old, know a little bit of English, New family, he's having a ball, jumping on the beds. I'm letting him do anything he wants. And then it comes time for bath time. I say, hey, come here, buddy. I want to show you something. So we go into the bathroom, and I turn the water on lukewarm, and I take his hand, I put it underneath the water, and then I just gradually, gradually turn the water warmer and warmer and warmer until he feels hot water for the very first time. He's like, that is wonderful. I said, it is wonderful. You're going to love it. Now, uh, uh, you, you, I'm going to go in there, and you hop in the shower. He said, shower? What's a shower? Well, I, he didn't know what a shower was. They didn't have a shower. So I explained a shower to him. You ever explained a shower to somebody? You know, it's like water from heaven. I mean, how do you explain that? <laughs> it was like the first time we went out to eat. I'll never forget that. The first time we went out to eat, you know, we're so privileged. We forget how privileged we are as far as luxuries and all of having things. You're sitting on padded pews in an environmentally controlled room, you know, but we went out to eat and, uh, and he, he was overwhelmed by a menu. I mean, normally for so for seven years in orphanage, he just ate whatever they brought him. But he had choices. And he was just overwhelmed with all the choices. He said, dad, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I said, all right, I'll order for you. And I said, just bring him some chicken fingers. 
<laughs> He's like, no! I don't eat chicken fingers. I said, no, 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 they're not chicken fingers. That's just what they call them. He goes, why do they call them that? And I was like, I don't really know. Just eat them, all right? <laughs> Dip them in barbecue sauce. It'll be okay. You can only imagine the first time we had buffalo wings. Oh, my word. You know, that's a long. <laughs> How do you explain that one? But all of that, I'll still remember, he went and took a shower. 40 minutes later, came out of the shower, smelling good, all shriveled up. And he goes, that was wonderful. You know, even today, he's, he's 22 now. Okay, when he's 12, even today, um, he, he still appreciates hot water. Why? Because he realizes, he remembers what it's like not to have it. You know, he just does. Hey, so what's your name? Huh? Ben? Is it, did I say it right? Sorry, Ben. All right, sorry to wake you up, Ben. Um, uh, hey, I'm teasing. <laughs> he's paying attention. I was just joking. Ben, I want to ask you a question, all right? I picked you because you look like the cleanest guy in that section. So, so, so Ben, you, you, you had a shower in the last two or three days? All right, good deal. Well, hey, Ben, when you had a shower and you felt the hot water, did you go like, yes, hot water? Did you do that? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I'm preaching today, Ben. All right, it's here. Simple question, Ben. When, when, when you felt that hot water, you didn't go like, hot water. Did you? Did, you didn't do that, did you? That's what I thought. Now he's being honest. <laughs> you see, folks, Ben, he's what's wrong with America. And I, he really is. He's right. <laughs> I'm teasing with you, Ben, sort of. What I mean is we, like Ben, we take simple things and we forget how much we should appreciate them. Same thing is true when it comes to church planning. You, you hear your pastor constantly talk about the need, and some of you, I'm sure, they well, why do we need another church? Just is there really a need for another church? And, and, and the sad thing is they're, they're, the population has grown at such a rapid pace that we've not kept up with it church-wise, and you see what has, our society has ended up being. We have a desperate need for more and more churches. Uh, uh, missiologists say you need one church for every 2,000 people. And you go to places like New York, there's one church for every 90,000 people. You go to Canada, there's one for every 100,000 people. And that's why it's important to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. You read the book of Acts, it's all about constantly uh, planting churches, reaching people and planting churches. It's reaching cities, making disciples, and then planting churches. That's the order. Reaching a community, making disciples, and then planting a church. It's a result of making disciples, not something you go out and launch and do. Let me show you something that you may be surprised about because you're a part of a network that's doing every Sunday you give, and a part of that goes to plant churches literally all over North America. It goes to plant churches right here in Iowa, as, as Pastor Todd just said. But I want to show you something of uh, back in D.C. D.C. in 2010, this is the amount of church plants we had in 2010. Well, uh, because of your faithful giving, this is what it looked like in 2021. Now, you go to Los Angeles, and I could go to every major city. Um, you go to Los Angeles, and this is what it looked like in 2010. This is what it looks like in 2011. And so, man, what's exciting about that is what it'll look like in 2030, because you want to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. I showed you my picture a while ago of all those six kids and seven grandkids. I mean, it's, it's, it's a chaotic around, uh, our, our son just got married to a, a young girl uh, uh, who's an only child. <laughs> you ought to see her face at Christmas around our house, like, oh my gosh. You know, it's just chaos. And it's a, it really, it's a fun chaos, but it's a chaos. But all of that started with just two people. 
And the beauty of multiplication is the same thing when it comes to churches that plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. And someone, God used someone to plant a church years ago. And that church in turn planted a church. And that church planted a church. And so on and so on until your church was planted. It didn't just happen. So being on mission is very critical to every person in here. Look, if, uh, if you do not know Christ in a personal way, I want you to know everything we've done here today is because God loved us so much, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, and our sins can be forgiven from him. That's why we come, that's why we, we're celebrating that today. The fact that he loves us so much, and we, we have forgiveness of our sins. If you're a believer here today, I want you to see that every one of us are on mission. Now, you're a part of a church that's on mission, but you, you yourself are to be on mission. If you're a guest, I want to apologize. You came your first Sunday, you come and you have a guest speaker. I want to encourage you, please, please, I beg you, come back next week and hear Pastor Todd. He's an incredible communicator. He's much better than I am. And today, it will not be as good. But it will not be as long, all right? Trust me. <laughs> but he's a good sport. But I, 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 want, I want you to turn to Acts 13, and I want to read a passage about the church of Antioch, and we're going to read about Saul and Barnabas. Saul's name eventually is transitioned to Paul, so you get the correlation there if you're used to reading some in the, in the New Testament. But I want to read this because it talks about being on mission, there, there was a guy years ago was asked, how do you start revival? And he was an old evangelist. He said, it's real, real simple. He said, real simple? Oh, yeah, it's real simple. You go into a room all by yourself. All by yourself? All by yourself. And you get a piece of chalk, a piece of chalk, a piece of chalk. And you draw a circle on the floor. And then you get down on your knees in that circle and pray that revival starts in that circle. My point here today is, as we look at this, I don't want you to think about this in a big shotgun in, uh, impact or a big, a, a big scope. I want you to be very specific here. You. How are you on mission? God placed you here for a purpose. You have a sphere of influence, whether it's in a factory or your business or a classroom, wherever it may be. You have a sphere of influence that, that there are others in here that do not have. You think as you, the church, leave here and the impact that you have for all of your spheres of influence and how you use it to be on mission. That's what we're talking about. So how do you do that? That's what we're going to look at, four different steps of that. The first one is living sent, to understand that you're being sent. Every one of us are being sent. It's not about planning a church. It's about reaching a city. It's about reaching a state, reaching a country. It's about living sent. Notice what happens here. In Acts 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and it names uh, several of them there. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and help me with those last three words. You ready? Sent. All right. One more time. You ready? Sent them off. There you go. They sent them off. They didn't bring them in. They sent them off. What we see as a characteristic of the church of Antioch is they were about sending people out. 
They sent them off. I really believe churches will be evaluated by how many people they send out, not how many people they keep in. Churches will be evaluated by their sending capacity, not by their seating capacity. Sometimes you want to judge a church, but my word, you know, they have this kind of auditorium, that kind of auditorium. It really, it just shows we have to be constantly sending people out. They were being sent. They got to send them out and make sure everyone understands that we're all on mission. Look, when you look on a bulletin or you look on a slide about a mission trip here or a mission trip there, what you really need to understand, if you read your New Testament, every day you live, every day you live, you're on mission. Every day. My neighbor came to me this week on Friday, rang the doorbell, came with tears in his eyes and said, man, I've got to make some life changes. And I've been working on a friendship with Michael for some time. And, and, and you know, I, I said, you know, I'd love to talk to you, but it's after five. And uh, I didn't do that. <laughs> because we're on mission all the time. There's no time to retire, no time to take a rest stop. People are, are dying and going to hell every day. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how tired you are. It is not time to pull over and coast. We have to keep the foot the pedal and do everything we possibly can because people really are dying and people really are going to hell when they die because they do not know Christ. And he's placed you in spheres of influence to make the very most. So the church sent them off. Why? Because they wanted to influence not just their local community, but they wanted to go into the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the best way they knew to do it. And I think it's the best form of evangelism is church planning, all right? And that's what they did. You guys go plant some churches. So look at the next thing, being sent, but also being obedient. Look what, what, look what they say. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to sell you. See, watch this. From there they went, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. His name is John, John Mark, goes by Mark. And you'll learn that Mark, this same John, Mark, uh, wrote the gospel of Mark, okay? So it's important to know, but you got Paul and Silas, I mean, Paul and, and Barnabas going out on the first missionary journey, and John Mark, kind of like the summer intern, if you will, okay? So here they go. What I want you to notice just real quick, in this part, being sent means to be obedient. One, he realized they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. What does that simply mean? What does that imply when you're sent out by the Holy Spirit? That means you're completely dependent upon the Lord. One thing that every person in here needs to understand is you are completely dependent upon the Lord. You're sent out by the Holy Spirit, you're completely dependent upon Him. For every breath that you breathe, everything that you have, we're completely dependent upon Him. And we're to be completely flexible. What I love about Acts 13, he says they went here, they went here. If you read on in Acts 14, 15, and 16, you'll see that, that Paul and Barnabas went certain places. They had the desire to go to certain places, and then the Lord would change the direction or would uh, uh, shift them somewhere else. They set out to sail here, and they ended up here, constantly uh, adjusting their, their calendar. There's nothing wrong with having a plan, but life throws us curveballs, is it not? I got six kids, and I, I told the earlier service, I have six kids, and I have a dry erase board in my office, and I would sit down, each one of my kids at different times, I'd sit down and, okay, now here's the next two years, here's the game plan. Here's what we're going to do, and here's how it's going to work, and here's, you know, here, I 
We're trying to draw out a plan. We've got to have a plan. We might change it, but we've got to have a plan. And they'd always laugh about it, and, and still today they make fun of my plans. Not one of them followed my plans. But anyway, it, I wanted to have a plan because life throws us curveballs. When you're led by the Holy Spirit, you understand you're completely dependable and you have to be completely flexible. I'm sure there's people in here who you studied one thing and then God led you in a path that you end up doing something totally different. And you could, we could all give testimonies of how different curveballs. Some end up good, some are challenging, but, but look, we have to adjust. And that's what we have to see here. You have to be obedient. Now I want you to see not being, being, only being obedient, but being challenged. When you're sent by the Lord and when you're obedient to him, some people get the idea that, oh, all right, I realize I'm on mission. I'm being obedient to him, going to where he wants me to go. It's going to be easy. God's going to reward me because I'm doing the right thing. He's going to reward me with an easy life. That is absolutely the, the opposite of what typically happens. God uses you. You're obedient. And there will be challenges. I didn't say when, it says when difficulty comes upon you. It's the reason he constantly reminds us to cast all of our anxieties upon him because we're going to have challenges. You can be in the, exactly where he wants you to be, doing exactly what he wants you to do in exactly the right time, and there will be challenges. Don't navigate your life by how you feel things are going. It's not about how you feel. It's how obedient you are, okay? Being obedient, or then you're going to be challenged. Let me show you this next uh, passage, if you would. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Just really in summary, what happened is basically the governor of that area wanted to hear more about what Paul and Barnabas were saying. His right-hand guy, his chief of staff, was saying, hey, 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 not a good idea, not a good idea. There'll be some unintended consequences here. You don't want to do this. And then later on, Paul approaches him and says, look, why are you perverting the things of the Lord? Why are you trying to make it complicated? And the guy ends up coming to to faith, but he had to confront this guy. The fact is, when you're obedient to the Lord, there are going to be challenges from outside the church. Outside, when you try to even witness to people, there are going to be challenges from the outside. But also, there are going to be some challenges from the inside. I shared a verse with you a moment ago, and I mentioned John Mark went with them. I did that because I wanted you to see what happens. This is what's called the first missionary journey. Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas out to plant churches on the first missionary journey. They come back to the church of Antioch, and they report back to Antioch. Here's what happened here. Here's what happened here. Here's what happened here. And told them all the good things that had happened. Then some time passed, and notice what happens in this particular verse. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, so here's, the, here's what, what happened. They were going to go back on a second missionary journey to check on all the churches and see how they're doing. 
It's almost like you just showed the video of all your different plants. You say, okay, we're going to go back and check on all those and check and see how they're doing. That's what they were going to do. But the problem came when Barnabas says, sounds great, Paul. I'll call my nephew, Mark, John Mark, and see if he wants to go. Paul says, do what? He said, I'm going to call John Mark and see if he wants to go. He goes, no, 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 no. Back, 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 Barnabas. Not going to happen. Barnabas says, oh, yes, it is. Oh, no, it's not. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, no, it's not. And they become such a, a challenge there that they end up going their separate ways. Look what happened in this next verse. And there arose such a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. May sound like a small thing to you. It's really not. Paul and Barnabas, in such a disagreement, they split over John Mark. Paul was really ticked at John Mark because when they went on the first missionary journey, you remember where they went? They went to a place called Cyprus. You know where that is? That's like Bahamas for Jesus. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? And so if you look at where they went on the first missionary journey, the first two or three stops were all really nice places. All right? I'm all in. But then what happens is they go to the really tough part, or what Paul refers to, he didn't even stay around for the work, it says. He went through the easy part, but when it got hard, he belted. Basically saying, look, Barnabas, I know he's your nephew, but he's a pansy, all right? He wimped out. I'm not wasting my time with the kid. He's not going. Barnabas says, look, I've got a say in this. He is going to go. I'll just take him, and we'll go that way. You go that way. So Paul and Silas go this way. Can you imagine the conversation? Paul saying to Silas, I can't believe, man, I have to tell you, Barnabas, you know I love Barnabas. I mean, we had some great times together. But and you know, I know he's the encourager. But good grief, I mean, he's he's he listens to his uh, heart, not his head. You can imagine that conversation. What I'd really like to know is what goes on on this other conversation because that had to be awkward. I mean, you got John Mark walking with Barnabas. John Mark knowing the only reason Barnabas is going that way and with him is because of him, and he had to say something like. Man, Uncle Barnabas, I am so sorry. I'm, you know what Paul said is true. I did wimp out. I, I, I mean, I did leave, and I didn't make it. I, I, I've learned some things, and what he said is true. I feel so bad, and I can't help but think that Barnabas, being the encourager he is, put his arm around his nephew and said, look, Mark, it's okay. I mean, yeah, you messed up, but you know what? I'm thankful we serve a God of a second chance. We serve a God of a third chance. And I just really believe God's going to do something special with you, Mark. Who knows? You may even write a book one day. <laughs> I'm thankful for people who don't give up on us when we make mistakes. My point is this. You're to live on mission. Understand you're being sent. You need to be obedient. But even when you're being sent and you're obedient, there are going to be challenges. So don't go into this thinking that it's just going to be cupcake and paved roads. It's not. It's tough. You plant a church, it's tough. You go on a mission, it's tough. To witness, it's, it's, it can be tough. But we'll be faithful and focused to the finish. I beg you today, however old you are, you're not done. However young you are, you're not too young. However tired you are, you're not too tired. 
We cannot let up. And that's why Paul was faithful and focused to the finish. Why is that so important? Because of this verse. And, and Paul stayed focused on it. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Paul was focused on the fact that, look, it's all about Jesus. You've heard today, we made much day as we led us in worship, we made much about Jesus. Why? Because he deserves it. And because he is the one that provides forgiveness for everyone. And that's why we must stay faithful and focused to the finish. But it's hard. Man, life's tough. Relationships can go go sour. Kids cannot always do what you teach them to do. Jobs don't always work out. Marriages don't. Finances can go awry. But we'll be faithful and focused to the finish. Paul knew this better than anyone. He got very discouraged. We don't have time today, but if you would read Acts 14, Acts 15, Acts 16, and 17, you see he got thrown in jail. He got ran out of places. It was tough. If you looked at his resume, you would not call him to any staff position. What I appreciate, though, is in Acts 18, verse 9 and 10, at the deepest, darkest point of Paul's life, the Lord comes to him, it says, in a dream or a vision, and tells him something. And honestly, there have been times in my life where I quoted this to myself several times a day. I still do it daily, but sometimes almost hourly, just to remind you of some things. Look what he said. This is what the Lord said to Paul. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, to what? Once you read it with me, I think it'll help us all. You ready? Here we go. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city. Oh, that sounds great. Now, let's go back and look at this. We're going to leave it up there. It says, do not be what? Afraid. Actually, the way it's written in the Greek, it stopped being afraid. So what the Lord is saying to Paul, Paul, you are afraid. Stop it. Stop being afraid. Stop that. You, you don't need to be afraid. I've got this, Paul. I'm not going to call you to do anything where you're going to go alone. And we have all those scriptures, all those passages where it says, he will never leave us and forsake us. I'll walk with you through the valley of the shadow. All those passages that reassure us that he will never leave us. He's never not there. And that's why he's saying, look, you should know this. Stop being afraid. Stop. You afraid? Stop. But then the second thing he says, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Paul, you keep on speaking and do not be silent. You go into city to city. You keep on speaking and don't be silent. What's he saying? Don't shut up. You don't quit. You keep on speaking and don't be silent. You don't quit. You're on mission, don't quit. You're on mission, don't quit. So the two things he tells him is what? Do not fear and do not quit. All right, let's just say it together, make sure we got it embedded here. Do not what? Yeah. And do not, quit. one more time, do not, yeah. and do not quit. That's right. Now, it would just be a pep rally if he left us there. But he tells us why. 
you, myself, Paul, anyone, doesn't have to fear and we don't have to quit. It's, it's in the next phrase. For I am with you. Paul, you stop being afraid because I'm with you. Do not quit because I'm with you. There's never going to be one day I'm not there. There's not one dark night that I'm not there. Not one difficulty. Look, I never, ever will leave or forsake you. I'm always going to be there. I am with you. If we could really grasp those few words and live our life as if we really believed those few words that he is with us, it would change everything. It would change the way we worship. It would change the way we serve. If you really, really believe that. But if you think about it, so often we live our days, we live our weeks sometimes as if we're, they're uncertain. And we are fearful and, and we do want to quit and because we just forget, look, he's already told us not to do those because I am with you and you be on mission. You stay focused and faithful to the very finish. Um, I should have told you this earlier, but um, I wanted to throw it in late because I didn't want you to uh, have anything against me. But uh, I'm a Kentucky fan, all right? Now, you guys like football, I know, and I was a big football state. I won't mention yesterday, but I know, yeah, you're a big football state. Everybody knows football is a big thing here. In Kentucky, where I'm from, it's just not that big a deal. Not insulting you, it's just not. That's how I was raised. It was kind of a, football is an appetizer. It's like the, the chips and the salsa. It's not waiting for, it's not the main course. That's basketball, all right? <laughs> football is such a, not a big deal for us. When I was a kid and there was a tornado, they would send all of us to the football field because there are very few touchdowns there, all right? And so, uh, I know. <laughs> bad dad joke, I know, I know. But basketball was the thing. Well, what happened was I got married back in December 28, 1985. Wonderful wife. I just showed you the picture, Lynette. And, uh, but she had one sister. Her dad was a hunter and fisherman. He really is not a competitive sport kind of a guy. So she's not very competitive, and I was very competitive. We got married December 28, 1985. Our first marital conflict, a serious marital conflict. Not disagree, but like we got to make some changes. Happened March of 1986. Watching a ball game. She wanted to talk. And I asked, could it wait until after the game? To which she responded, is the game more important than me? I thought about it too long. <laughs> I've learned from now on you don't do that, all right? You but she said, you know, that, that brings up another thing. I went, oh, no. You know, like, here it comes. And she said, you, you've got some things you really need to work on. And I was like, well, what do you mean? She said, you're too competitive. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, well, the way you watch games. I've seen how you watch the games. It's just ridiculous. She said, uh, you did this when we were dating, and it's gotten worse since we got married. I said, what do you mean? Well, my word. Well, how can this be? She goes, you yell at the TV. You think you're there. You yell at the referees. I said, I'm just trying to help them do a better job. She said, you yelled at the coach. I'm reminding them who to send in, who to take out. You know, she goes, you really think you're helping them. 
And so, anyway, I could tell, I mean, it is somewhat humorous, but I could tell one of those things where, like, eh, we're going to make some adjustments. And if she were here today, she'd tell you I did that. Back in 1986, I changed, and I still do it today. I don't watch the games live. I just don't. I don't watch them live. It's changed our, our life and marriage, I'm telling you. It's much, much better. The, I tape the games. You say you tape them and don't find out the score and then watch it. That's not how it works. I tape the game. I find out if we won or not. And if we won, I watch it. If we lose, I delete it. So I only watch games that we win. Why watch a game you're going to lose? It's just going to tick you off, you know? So now, I promise you, I can go home. I can show you any game you want that we won, and it's wonderful. Yeah. And what's nice about it is it just changes the way and watch the game. A few years ago, we were in a, a quarterfinal uh, tournament game. We were down by 10 points at halftime. The announcers were negative, negative, negative. You know, it's insurmountable league. Can they never come back from this? And all. I mean, it was just negativity all halftime. Did it bother me? Not at all. Why? I know we win. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm up there getting another peanut butter and jelly, taking my, I'm enjoying the day, you know? They keep being negative, and when sometimes people get negative, it can really affect you unless you know the outcome is much different. Twelve minutes ago in the game, we're still down by eight. I don't care. Don't bother me. Down by eight. Down by six with eight to go. I don't care. We're down two points with one minute to go, and they got the ball. Am I nervous? Not at all. I'm petting my dog. Because I know what's going to happen. 40 seconds to go. We're going to steal the ball. We did again. Just happened. 40 seconds. We steal the ball. We come down. We pass it around. We're going to get a shot off. I bet we do. <laughs> they throw it around to a guy named Andrew Harrison from three-point, and he shoots a three-pointer, and it goes in every time. I watch it. Now, it's a silly story. What I want you to understand about the story is it changed everything because I knew how it ended, took all the anxiety out because I, I, I believed in what was going to happen. That's what the Lord's trying to tell Paul here. Hey, Paul, you don't know everything I do. You're, on, you're not omnipresent. I am. You're not omnipotent. I am. And because of that, I'm telling you to stop being afraid. <laughs> There's no need. It's a little silly. He said, well, yeah, but I'm just, I know you're human, but I'm just telling you, you don't need to be afraid. As silly as it be to be nervous about a game, you know you win. Who cares? And you do not quit. And what happened? You turn it off at halftime because you just don't want to watch the rest. No, because you know you're going to win. You keep, you stay in there. I don't know where you are in this game of life, if you will, but I just want to encourage you, do not fear. Do not quit, for he is with you. But I don't want you to forget the last part of that verse in verse 10. As he told Paul, because I have many people in this city that you know not of. I have many people in this city you know not of. Paul, I'm going to use you to do things going to blow your mind. Paul, I'm, I'm going to reach people through you you've not even met yet. Don't underestimate me. Paul, there are many people in this city you know not of. 
It's a guy named Bill's a phone installer. They used to actually do that in houses years ago. Worked for a company called Bell South. He was in Hopkinsville, a town called Hopkinsville, and he, he was installing a house, this couple's home, Mike and Glenda. And as he installed the telephone and have a college degree, you know, formal education, just a hard worker. But he was a believer, and he was determined to share his faith. And so he installed the phone, but also began to share his faith with the man of the house, Mike. He did so much to intrigue Mike, and he asked more questions, and ultimately, Bill led Mike to Christ as a phone installer in his house. Mike, in turn, his wife, Glenda, and they had three kids, and it was interesting to hear him tell it. Everything changed for them. What they did on Friday night changed. What they did on Saturday night changed. What they did on Sunday changed. How they talked to each other changed. Everything changed because God sent Bill to share with Mike. I know that story because I was one of those three kids. That was my dad that came to know Christ because a guy named Bill installed a phone in our house, but also installed Christ in our home. I never met Bill. Hopefully one day I'll get to. But God reminded Paul, Paul, there are many people in this city you know not of. And you college students, could have aspirations and dreams, but man, don't underestimate what God can do through you. Senior adults, man, don't pull over. Now is not the time to pull over. We must be on mission because he's worth it. He wants to bow our heads. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, our pastors and leaders will, will be in the front in just a moment, would love to talk with you about next steps and how to do that. It's the most important decision in your life. Everything else flows from that. If you're a believer today, I just want to encourage you to take your next missional step to be on mission. You're in a dangerous spot if you're in this church because this church is on mission. They're already ascending church. You can think you're on mission and you're just kind of watching and cheering everybody else on and you not really maximizing what God would have you do. Father, I thank you for the opportunity today to not only read your word, but to apply it. Lord, help each one of us be sensitive about the journey that you want us to be on. May we be on mission, and may we stay faithful and focused to the finish. Father, thank you for all that you've provided. But Lord, use us. Help us to not be afraid, to not quit, and always rest in your presence. In Jesus' name. Amen.